If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardenersworldfair.com. See you there. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Voted the UK's favourite mammal in a 2016 vote organised by the Royal Society of Biology, the hedgehog holds a special place in the nation's hearts, and particularly the hearts of gardeners. Many of us who have regular hedgehog visitors in our gardens know how lucky we are, with lots of us investing in hedgehog boxes to house them, feeding station and food to nourish them, and even night cameras to watch them. And yet, so many of us have never seen a hedgehog at all or at least haven't seen one for some years. Hello, I'm Kate Bradbury, and today I'm talking to ecologist, writer and public speaker, Hugh Warwick, who has a particular fondness for hedgehogs. As the author of not one or two, but three books on hedgehogs, what he doesn't know about these spiny mammals is not worth knowing. I started by asking him, what is it about hedgehogs that we love so much? Well, I think the thing that people love most about hedgehogs is it's not a magic thing, and it's based around something very simple about their behaviour. Now, obviously, the hedgehog are only prickly mammal, covered in spines, these amazing little bits of modified hair, mean that they have got a defence mechanism uh, when threatened, which is is straightforward. Uh, they'll, they'll frown, and then they'll roll up into a ball. You know, the frowning mechanism is fantastic. So you get the frown on the hedgehog goes all the frown muscle goes from just above the nose all the way down to the tail. And um, I was doing a, um, a doing a thing on the one show, and I'd never met Ryland before. Um, and I was like, I was a bit sort of like, oh my gosh, well this is interesting. And um, anyway, so so in doing the interview for, for it, and he was so saying about the hedgehogs, they just roll into a ball, don't they, when they're frightened? And I said, well, no, they actually the first thing a hedgehog does is it frown. And I was explaining, so so, so go on, you frown. And he looked at me, oh, I can't frown. I got Botox. And at that moment, I I got it. I suddenly got it. He it was just I, I just thought, oh, okay, he's wonderful. I love him now. So that's great. So. It, Anyway, so the point is, sorry, this is a distraction. Um, the point is that hedgehogs don't have a fight or flight response. So, so most wildlife that we will encounter in our garden, or in fact anywhere, um, uh, will either you know, bite us or run away if we get too close to it. Um, but the hedgehog doesn't do that. It frowns and then it rolls into a ball. And this gives us the potential to get close to a genuinely amazing wild animal. Uh, and in fact, you, you can end up getting nose to nose with this staggeringly impressive carnivore, you know, bigger than over 95% of all animals that have ever lived on the planet. This is a fantastically evolved carnivorous beast, yet we can get close to it because of its absence of fight or flight response. So I think a large part of the reason we have this affection for hedgehogs is because many of us have had moments of proximity like this. And on top of that, we are then, that's been built over years into the stories which have come. So since the, since year zero, um, from Hedgehog's perspective, which if you take your mind back to, I think, is it 1904 or 1905? Um, Mrs. Tiggywinkle, a Beatrix Potter story. Prior to that, pretty well every single reference to hedgehogs had some sort of portent or doom or gloom about it. You know, this is a secretive nocturnal animal which could have all sorts of stories attached to it. Um, and uh, I mean, if you look back at uh, um, Hans the Hedgehog, the, the Brothers Grimm story, in its unbalterized version, it's 
terrifying. It's hideous. Um, and if you think about the the Welsh, the the Gaelic, the the, the Scottish word for uh, for hedgehog, um, I'm going to say something now which is going to sound nothing like what it's supposed to sound like. But crainog or crainog, it translates as the ugly one. Yeah, so so the, the the hedgehog has got this this whole history of not being the cute, the whimsical, and the wonderful animal that it is. But Beatrix Potter, as she did with so many other species, just transformed it. And we have built up this entire uh, um, sort of experience of stories that we've been told and read as children, which feature the hedgehog at the very worst um, is benign, but otherwise is the sweet, the whimsical, and the cute headline of the story. That's amazing, isn't it? Because, I mean, historically, there's been quite a lot of completely bonkers stuff written about hedgehogs, including that they carry fruit on their backs um, and that they steal milk from cows. I mean, how, where did that where did that come from? Do, do we actually know? Um, well, I mean, Aristotle's got a lot to answer for. I mean, yeah, people go, oh, great ancient Greek, isn't he so clever? Well, he wasn't that bloody clever, was he? Because I can assure him that nobody ever has seen hedgehogs carrying fruit on their spines for a number of different reasons. And uh, also, there has been a degree of experimentation on this, which I wasn't party to, but probably was a project designed in a pub. Um, and so if you get a ripe plum, uh, this is a fruit chosen of choice, um, and you drop it on a happy hedgehog, the he happy hedgehog spines are all lying flat. And it's walking along and it'll just bounce off. Um, if you've got an upset hedgehog, which is rolled into a ball and the spines are all pointing upwards, it is possible to drop a plum onto the spines of a hedgehog and for it to be impaled. And so the theory possibly was that somebody had seen a hedgehog with some fruit on its spines and that would be the case. But as soon as the hedgehog moves, the spines flatten and the fruit falls off. And they don't eat fruit anyway, obviously. No, I mean, the reason why this has become a story, I believe, is because come the autumn around an orchard, vineyards or whatever, when fruit is ripe and fruit has dropped to the floor, hedgehogs, when there were more of them around, would have been seen snuffling in their abundance, snuffling around the fruit. Now, obviously, we know that they're after the macroinvertebrates, which are there after the rotting fruit. But for somebody who just sees them coming there to the orchard where the fruit is, there'll be an assumption that they're after the fruit. And then there is the step on, well, how do they get the fruit back to their burrows? They must carry it on their spines. Um, so um, so eh, that one, we could put that to one side. Um, then the milk thing, though, is actually quite easy to explain. Now, obviously, hedgehogs are lactose intolerant. It's just that they don't know that, um, which has led them to all sorts of problems. And the um, so what you'll end up with a situation, imagine a recumbent cow in the morning. Okay, so now, if you have a close look at a hedgehog's mouth and hedgehog's teeth, teeth designed for catching small little squirmy, wormy things and beasties and slugs and stuff like that, you know that this is not going to be a traditional latch on and suckle type relationship. It's not going to go well for either party. Also, actually, cow's teeth are considerably larger than a hedgehog's mouth. However, it is possible that you will have a recumbent cow which may seep a little. There will be a little bit of spillage and hedgehogs, whilst being lactose intolerant, are not aware of this fact and they will find something full of sugar and fat and protein and they'll lap it up. And then they will be spotted by the person coming to round the cattle up in the morning to, to send them off into to milking and they'll see a little hedgehog there with milky chops and they'll go, you rotter, you can't do that. Um, and uh, and, and um, then they'll be blamed for stealing milk. And uh, yeah, back in Queen Elizabeth's time, a, a law was passed um, um, condemning hedgehogs for theft of the nation's grain and milk and things, and hedgehogs were killed uh, in great abundance. Um, in fact, one of the books on which the microphone sits is Roger Lovegrove's uh, Silent Fields, which charted the persecution of wildlife throughout the parishes of this country. And in it, hedgehogs, you get money for bringing in hedgehogs to your local parish, uh, dead hedgehogs, obviously, um, because you are saving the nation's grain. They don't eat grain. They actually eat the pests, which might eat the grain, or and the nation's milk supply. Well, they don't drink that either, particularly because it gives them diarrhea. <laughs> that's incredible. I, I mean, I you know, I I did not know. That's news to me that there was actually a law passed to to prosecute the hedgehog for um, stealing milk and grain. Neither of which they're particularly interested in. Um, they've obviously sort of captured the imagination of of, of people for, for centuries, um, which is not surprising given you know that they're quite sort of 
they roll into a ball and and you know they were once seen in, in great abundance but how did how did you get into hedgehogs you well it's not i was asked this recently and there isn't like this great romantic moment at the beginning um it was practical i was doing my degree at leicester polytechnic um back in the mid 1980s and the my supervisor uh, looking for third-year projects for students. And um, he suggested that there was this potential to look at the impact of hedgehogs that had been introduced to North Ronaldsey, the most northerly of the Orkneys, uh, back in 1974. And the bird warden on the island, who was a mate of my supervisor, was concerned that the increased sightings of hedgehogs was happening at the same time as a decrease in the breeding success of ground-nesting birds, and wondered whether the two might be related. In particular, the Arctic terns on North Ronaldsey, an amazing, beautiful bird. And so in 1986, I went up there and spent my summer holidays uh, counting hedgehogs um, on, on North Ronaldsey and come back and be confronted by my you know, contemporaries. Now, what, what were you doing counting hedgehogs? Why? Well, to find out how many there were, of course. Basics of ecology. Anyway, so, yeah, literally trying to find out if there were the sorts of numbers that had been... Um, the Daily Express suggested there were 10,000 hedgehogs on the island, which is the island's only one mile long and one mile wide and five miles long. That's a, yeah. Anyway, it was, of course... It was, of course, a journalist who had done the thing which, when the, uh, the ornithologist, when asked how many hedgehogs are there, he spoke in orders because that's what you would do. And so you, know, you could say there's been one and ten, ten and a hundred, a hundred and a thousand, or between a thousand and ten thousand. And at that stage, they thought there were over a thousand hedgehogs on the island. So he said between one and ten thousand. So that's entirely reasonable from an ornithologist's point of view. And it's entirely reasonable from a journalist's point of view to ignore the bit, which was the, you know, the caveat and the go with the top of yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So I went up and did that as my third year project, wrote that up. Um, I returned uh, to um, the island off my own back in 1991. Um, and then I, by that stage, I was uh, uh, just a wonderful guy, D Derek Yalden, who's an amazing scientist. He was giving me some assistance and sort of thoughts on it. Then Dr. Pat Morris, who um, is sort of the godfather of the British hedgehog, um, he got in touch. And, but he then suggested I go off to Dungeness because there'd been a story there about hedgehogs eating birds' eggs. And so I went off to Dungeness and... Um, I met and interviewed uh, Derek Jarman, of all people. And it was just, I mean, I've, I'd always been a fan of his work. And um, and the Bird Observatory down there, um, uh, their, their response was, I said, I was going and knocking on everybody's doors and asking about sightings of hedgehogs. They go, oh, you, oh, you don't want to go there. Oh, the only the other week they had a bunch of bloody blokes dressed as nuns dancing around the place. And I was going, <laughs> oh, that'll be the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Yes, this should be fun. Um, anyway, he was lovely. Um, so, so I did, and then Pat Morris got me radio tracking hedgehogs in Devon in 1993. So, Sorry, long, long answer to the short question, how did my thing happen? It began practically. Not many people were studying hedgehogs. Also, remember the thing about fight and flight response. Um, actually, if you are choosing an animal to study and it's liable, A, to just run away from you or B, bite you, why? Why not choose something which isn't going to do those things? So I, I, it seemed an obvious animal to go for if you're essentially a coward and lazy. And... Um, so I was radio tracking hedgehogs in Devon, but the moment, the, there was a transformative moment and it took place in Devon when um, I ended up flat on a, on a country lane, nose to nose with Nigel, um, who, who was a hedgehog. Obviously, you have to name your hedgehogs when you're living alone in a caravan, wandering around every night. Um, and, um, and, and it was a moment of just realising that this is actually quite a special relationship you can develop with a hedgehog or with an animal. Um, and that because the animal has these certain characteristics, it means that we can have this moment when he looks up at me, makes eye contact with me and notices me and then snuffles off doing his own thing. Um, and I'd followed him down this country lane. He was pulling I could see him pulling out these very small little slugs from the verge, just as he was pootling along. And, um, and he was just you know, snaffling those up really quickly. And then he just, the reason he'd paused was because he had um, come to a bigger black slug, probably inch and a half or so long. And he then did something I'd never seen a hedgehog do before, but he scraped it across the road surface to scrape off the slimy mucilage. Um, and then started eating it. Um, and very much in a way that... Um, yeah, this isn't, it was a bit like giving a kid Brussels sprouts. Yeah, he ate it and then started self-anointing. Um, but so, so we have this, so yeah, we were close on the road together. And for me, it was just this, this realization that 
Well, it, it developed into an idea. Um, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, the American writer, um, so he's an amazing, amazing writer, and he coined a phrase. He said, we will not fight to save what we do not love, which is a really straightforward and simple thing. Um, and everybody understands that. And, and the big wildlife and conservation groups have always understood it, but they've tended to try and seduce us into falling in love with nature using the charismatic megafauna. Um, I had three posters on my bedroom wall. And above my... <laughs> And above my bed, I had a, an amazing, imposing tiger. And opposite me, I had a breaching humpback whale. And above my desk, I had a poster of a young woman who'd been playing tennis but forgotten her underwear. You remember that poster? The, uh, the ten yeah. Okay, so, so yeah, a 15-year-old boy, you can't really, you know, you can't judge too much. And anyway, the point being is I'm, I was as likely to get nose-to-nose -nose with the humpback whale as I was with the tennis girl. You know, these things just aren't going to happen. And if you're lucky you'll find love by falling in love with the girl or the boy next door. And the hedgehog is the animal equivalent. It's the one you've actually got a chance of getting close to. Well, hedge hedgehogs just, they hang around, don't they? They're just, once, once they're used to you, they don't really, they're not really bothered by you, which, which is, it's lovely. Yes. Sorry. Anyway, that, that's a very so long answer to a small. So no, I, that was fine. a moment. And, and actually that was the moment I, I realized that that was the transition from liking to loving. And, and for me, I think that's a really important thing. We can watch stuff on um, yeah, beautiful David Attenborough programs. They're amazing. They're gorgeous. But we're going to essentially like it. We're going to remain in the half-hearted liking of something. You know, we, we click the button on social media. We like something. Um, but you know what? That's not enough. <laughs> we need to love. We need to love. We need to love. And so you fell in love with the hedgehogs. And, and your, whole, your whole career now is... is it's very hedgehog heavy, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so my wife, my wife, she will do these things. I so I'm doing an interview today. And she goes, oh, really? What about? And I go, and I realise she's just, you know, teasing me because she, so it's delightful that after this, I'm going off to go and be interviewed by local BBC about orchids. It's like, I can do other things. You could do other things. I've written books about, I wrote a book about 12 different species um, in the UK. I went and met 12 different people who are a bit like me, which was alarming. Um, and so, yeah, I met the, the otter version of me and the dragonfly version of me and um, the beaver version of me. And, and so I've, I've done all that. And I've written books about beavers and mortar voles. And I, I, you know, I love nature. I love wildlife. I love communicating about these things. Um, and I find the hedgehog is the most perfect tool with which to talk about the bigger environmental ecological issues because... People love hedgehogs, as as you said in the introduction. The you know every time there's a voter or poll, the hedgehog wins it because people just adore them. So that means I will get invited to women's institute groups all over the country and towns, women's guilds, and gardening clubs, and University of the Third Age, and essentially I I follow cake. Um, and it's a so I do you know talk to all over the place, and these people invite me in to talk about hedgehogs because they know people love hedgehogs. They wouldn't invite me in to talk about the national planning policy framework. They wouldn't invite me in to talk about the collapse of macroinvertebrate fauna. They wouldn't invite me in to talk about uh, the, the, the agricultural policy. But this is what they do. Um, and so I, I've, I've basically invented what I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to trademark this now. Um, I've created a, a Trojan hedgehog, uh, which, which gets me, uh, yeah, and so gets me in and then we can talk about these bigger issues. Mm, that's brilliant. Um, which sort of leads me on really to to hedgehog declines because um, since you started studying them and falling in love with them, they, they've they've declined quite significantly. It's not related. <laughs> it's just correlation, not causation. Please don't in, don't in any way suggest this. <clears throat> so no, hedgehog, you're absolutely right. hedgehog population decline is serious, and um, I'm, I'm I'm sure you're well aware of the state of Britain's hedgehogs report, which um, so I help run the hedgehog street campaign, which is the collaboration between the British Hedgehog Preservation Society and the People's Trust for Endangered Species. And so we've been working now for 11 years, um, uh, pooling our, our resources, pooling our expertise, um, and creating these every th three or four years, we produce a State of Britain's Hedgehogs report. Last one came out earlier this year. Uh, just And it's a... It's a fascinating read, in fact. Um, uh, the, the fact is that we've got a... We've almost got two populations of hedgehogs. I mean, they're the same species, obviously, uh, but in the way they're behaving. So we have urban hedgehog numbers. Um, now, 
you're probably wanting to ask me, how many hedgehogs are there in the country? We've no idea how many hedgehogs there are. But what we know is that with systematic surveying from around the year 2000, which, you know, 2000 is, is the, the starting point, we know whether the numbers have gone up or down from that starting point, but we don't know what that starting point is. Uh, so we know from the year 2000 to now, we've got around a 25% decline in urban hedgehogs, which is quite bad. But the last five years now, the sur- six even, the survey suggests it's levelling off. There may even be a slight uptick, which is very, but it's very only exciting. in urban areas. Only in it? urban areas. Which and- is astonishing. Uh, but rural hedgehogs, their population is declining between 30 and 75% in that period of time. Uh, so in absolute freefall. So we've got these the, the two very different sets of pressures being placed on hedgehogs. And so whilst it can be, it's ne- necessary to talk about hedgehogs as a species, it's also worth sort of splitting them a little bit into where the hedgehogs actually are. There have been some estimates that say there's, there's actually less than 500,000 in the country I'm, I'm, do you think that's true? That seems like a staggeringly low amount. Um, the, there are a number of numbers out there uh, with varying degrees of robustness. And um, to be honest, I can't tell you how many there are. Um, I, if the figures suggested that in the late 90s are true, then a figure of below 500,000 is probably true. Okay, because that's the decline over time that we would expect uh, that we well, that, that we have seen. But what we don't know is whether that figure, that starting point, was actually an accurate figure. So, so it, it this is the trouble being a scientist about these things is that I could just leap into hyperbole and say they're all doomed. Give us your money now, or I prevaricate and go all sort of grey and wishy-washy, but that's unfortunately how science is. What, so, so the figures I've given you are the things we know with a, quite a degree of robustness. Um, other figures are less robust. And, and so therefore, I'm not sure about the value of a number when it's not robust, when I am conscious that we've got a fairly robust figure showing the decline. Uh, I'm, I, I'm sorry if I'm being... No, that's fine. I mean, another another figure that that is um, sort of banded about a lot is, is is the thirty million hedgehogs in the nineteen fifties. I mean, is are we saying now that's not robust? Okay, so do, um, shall I, I run you through the methodology for that figure? Summer evening walk around Kew Gardens. Right. Saw ten hedgehogs in ten acres or whatever it was he was in, and extrapolated. Yeah. No. That's where the 30 million hedgehogs came yeah. from. Okay. So now the wow. point is, I mean, he didn't totally extrapolate. He, you know, mountains and wetlands and stuff, he discounted. But he did a sort of... Point is, he could be right. He could have been right. Or he could have been a million miles away. We simply don't know. So I, these groups I go and talk to and get fed cake from, um, I do charge a small fee just in case you're thinking I'm a very cheap, cheap date, um, <laughs> it is a is that a lot of the audiences, especially when I started out, I find I am beginning to catch them up. Um, but a lot of the audiences were a lot older than me. And so, you know, 10 years ago, I'm talking to people in their 80s and I'm asking them for their recollection. Now, this is, this is anecdata. You know, this is anecdotal data. It's, it's, it's completely not robust. But if you look at the decline, which we know of um, at least 25% in urban areas and, and you know, up to 75% in rural areas since the turn of the century... And you talk to people who remember back to just after the Second World War and about the numbers of hedgehogs they saw then. I don't think it's unreasonable, if our current figures are right, to suggest that we've had a 90 to 95% decline in hedgehogs since the end of the Second World War. Now, that, again, is not robust, but it's something which ties in with my, say, my anecdata, you know, this talking to people and seeing what they're seeing now and trying to you know, very vaguely gauge, are you going into the garden as much as you used to? Yes, but I forgot why. Um, compared to, you know, when they were sneaking out as a kid to have a crafty fag behind the bike shed. You know, it, it's a, you know, it's obviously, it's not robust data, but it gives you an impression about, and if you go and you talk to any groups of people who have got that depth of history, um, and start speaking to them about what they recollect about pretty much every bit of wildlife, you will find similar declines. 
It's it's interesting actually. I mean, you know, obviously I do talks as well, and I've never I've never thought to ask octogenarians. It always makes me think of Tom's Midnight Garden, which is basically a um a, a book written in the 1950s, I think, that was one of my favourite childhood books um, that makes me cry every time I read it. I read it recently, about five years ago. And um, it's essentially Tom sort of goes down at midnight when the clock strikes midnight and he goes out to the garden that that has now been paved over. And it's just a sort of, it's a a real story of our times. And there's no hedgehogs in the book, but it's, it's, it's just, you know, a, a, it's it's a metaphor almost I think really for 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 what for what we've done and, and the loss of everything. But also I think with hedgehogs, what's interesting with hedgehogs is that you will get an answer of yes or no whether you've seen hedgehogs lately because you clock it. Uh, what I've also found is that you tend to get yes or no, yes or no, yes or no, and then you get a long period of no, and people go, oh, I haven't seen a hedgehog for a long period of time. Now in the hinterland of that they will have maybe gone from seeing 10 hedgehogs in a summer to eight to six to four to whatever but what their clock they clock hedge they tick hedgehog in their brain and so you get this the shifting baseline syndrome which was developed with the fisheries industry you you end up forgetting well you don't you end up not noticing um the decline uh but then you notice the absence and so a lot of the people who've talked about noticing the absence and um, um, are suddenly go, oh, gosh, they've, they, you know, that was when the problem was. But actually, the problem started way back then. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, our grandparents will have seen more hedgehogs than, than we're seeing. But their grandparents, you know, I mean, would have just been hedgehogs running around all over the place. Well, that's, that's sort of, you know, what I'm imagining. What would have been amazing about that? I had a lovely. I was being interviewed by um, Patrick Barkham for for a Guardian piece about hedgehogs. He was very apologetic. Um, he said, "You could just write. I know I could write this. I need the money." I said. Anyway, he was asking. <laughs> he, he was saying, "When do you think peak hedgehog was?" And so this was an interesting question, and it was one of those ones that got me into all sorts of trouble because I'm used to journalists not quoting me precisely. You know, it happens quite a lot, and so I. Um, I, I was just, I mean, I was thinking on the hoof, I hadn't, I hadn't been prepared for this. And I was going, well, you know what? Probably while John Clare was being driven mad by the enclosures, the hedgehogs were looking around at all these new hedgerows and going yippity-doo and spreading out all over the place. So they're not quite listed as endangered, are they? They're classed as vulnerable to extinction. So, but they're on the red list, which is... You know, but being, they are red listed. Yeah, so being on that red list is really important. It's given that... Over the last 20 years or so, there's been gradual recognition of the decline of hedgehogs, but mostly it's been hampered by lack of good data. So um, the ornithologists have got this gang and they go out and they count every bloody thing. And everything that tweets has got feathers, it's got counted up to the nth degree. Hedgehogs are really difficult to survey in that sort of sort of level to that sort of level. So for many years, actually, we've had the hedgehog, you know, just not sufficient data. Um, and, and so I think that if there'd been an acceptance of our, of our, our sort of index of hedgehog decline, as opposed to absolute numbers, we could have got the hedgehog, uh, maybe lifted up the protection levels even earlier. But, but unfortunately now we have a situation where there is a, a desire to, to rip apart all of the, you know, the, the green nonsense, which is out there hampering development. And we're not going to see the protection hedgehogs need. Okay. So can you talk us through the challenges that they face and why we're seeing less of them? Oh my goodness me. Well, can we can we split <laughs> it into the urban and the rural? Is that all right? Yes, yeah. Okay. Let's so do that. but I know that this is a ba- yeah, based around gardens. So I will skim through rural hedgehog population decline first. Um industrialized agriculture requires the removal of competition for farmers. That's, that's absolutely simple. If you look at you know, the work of um, Dave Goulson, for example, yeah, he shows clearly how macroinvertebrate decline is 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 absolutely evident all over the, the farmed, well, the entire industrialized landscape. Um, now, I mean, this isn't a farmer bashing thing. This is just the reality. You've got a field of all seed rape. You actually need to um, you need to remove the competition to be able to make a profit. And uh, so, unfortunately, competition is hedgehog food. And it's, it's bat food and it's, it's farmland bird food and it's toad food and all these other amazing animals food. So you create an ecological desert. Now, this is a desert which can become, which, which many in the farming world can, can miss because 
their gardens, if they are lucky enough to actually live out in the countryside, their gardens will become an oasis. And so we'll often flourish and give the impression that, wow, we live in the countryside and look how much wildlife we got here. But that isn't carried out into the, the great big fields. Um, so, so we have that as a really key part of the problem. We've got the, the fragmentation of the landscape, which comes with motorways and busy roads, but also the fragmentation of the landscape, which comes with the presence of badgers. Badgers will eat hedgehogs. Um, and if you plot map of badger presence over hedgehog presence, where you find lots of badgers, you have fewer hedgehogs. Um, it seems to be related to the density of badger numbers. So it's not just presence of badgers, it's a dense presence of badgers will increase the chances of hedgehogs not being there. There is absolutely no justification for going out and exterminating badgers to, on the pretext of saving hedgehogs. It, it's, it's an ecologically illiterate nonsense. Um, however, on the other side, we cannot deny that the presence of badgers does affect the presence of hedgehogs. Plenty of work has been done about this. But it seems that they have what's known as an asymmetric intraguild predatory relationship. Please explain. Um, <laughs> asymmetric. So these two species operate within the same ecological guild. They eat the same food. Most of the time, they eat worms and other macroinvertebrates. Um, so our best understanding, and the point is, this is our best understanding, and it could be proven in you know, years to come that, that you know, badger fleas kill hedgehogs or something. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I'm making that up, obviously, but it's, our best understanding is that these two species act as competitors for the same food resource most of the time. Badgers have an advantage that each badger will eat the equivalent of, of five, I think about five or six different hedgehogs worth of food. Badgers can dig, hedgehogs just scratch the surface. So when the weather gets drier, the badgers can reach food when the hedgehogs can't. But our best understanding is that when the wider ecosystem becomes degraded, their relationship shifts from being one of competition to one of predation. And as much as I'm sure you have imagined a small herd of hungry hedgehogs chasing a badger as it flees down uh, a Somerset hedgerow, it's not that way around. I have, I have very interesting dreams. Anyway, so, <clears throat> the, so yeah, the, the, the badgers have an impact, but it's illiterate to describe it as you know, them being the cause of it. It's not their fault. Also, the badgers, as I say, they fragment the landscape. Badger activity stops hedgehogs moving down uh, linear features. So, so that's our, our rural landscape. It's very, very difficult being a hedgehog out there at the moment. Lack of food, a fragmentation of the landscape and a predator, or, or, or at least a species that creates a landscape of fear. In fact, what we found mostly is that hedgehogs, naive hedgehogs released into a farmed environment if there are badgers there, they simply retreat to villages or to farmhouses. They, they're not they're gobbled up there. They just have a smaller home range and they are restricted in their ability to move through the landscape. Yeah. A friend of mine, he um, he set up, he, he moved into a few streets for me and set up this amazing hedgehog street. They had they had a hedgehog house in every single garden. They All of the neighbours clubbed together and they got bought hedgehog biscuits. They had this amazing community, this amazing network of gardens. Um, he did a hedgehog count and he had 43 hedgehogs coming into his garden one night. I mean, it was just amazing. And then uh, a housing estate was built um, on an area of, of former farmland um, I think, no, it was on allotments. Housing estate was built on allotments um, where there were badgers. The badgers were displaced by the housing estates. They moved into his hedgehog streets. He's got some horrible footage of badgers eating hedgehogs and hasn't seen a hedgehog for two years. That is very, very dramatic. Isn't it? Oh, that really, it's, really is. It's, 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 and he, he, I actually saw him last night and, um, and he, he said, you know, he said one of his neighbours further up the road has seen a hedgehog quite recently. So it could be that they're moving back. But I think it's like you say that, that fear, the scent of badger is enough to just displace the whole community. Um, and it's really sad because they were doing so well. I suppose what I ought to do is, is go back to our urban hedgehog population decline. So, no, I mean, urban hedgehog populations have, been suffering a decline. Now, obviously, we in our, our hedgehog street uh, research and the state of Britain's hedgehogs research, it shows this levelling off. However, what we don't know is what happened before the year 2000. So, so it is, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's quite possible that there had been a cataclysmic decline before that time, but we, we don't actually know. So we can, 
give you as those figures in this you know, couple of decades. Um, and, and the causes for the hedgehog decline in urban areas, um, loss of habitat, obviously, I mean, is, is that, that you've got things which grew things which allowed uh, insects to lay eggs, which turned into the grubs that the hedgehogs would eat, um, being paved over. But I, I also believe a really crucial part of it is the fragmentation of the remaining habitat. And, um, and there is some amazing work um, done by, uh, by scientists um, recently. And I just, I, when I was radio tracking hedgehogs, it tended to rain and you had to be out with your radio transmitter every night following the hedgehogs around the place. And now... These, these youngsters, they don't know they're born. Um, they're putting a little GPS tags on the back of hedgehogs and collecting the data a few weeks later. I mean, for goodness sake. Um, anyway, so but you'll see this dance of the hedgehogs through a, a, a suburban housing estate. There's a really amazing uh, um, graphic which is supplied to me from, from it's actually in Brighton. And you can see, see how far the hedgehogs will move each night. And the hedgehogs love a mosaic habitat. If you want to describe a perfect hedgehog habitat, it is essentially suburban gardens because you've got you know, a garden which has got a log pile, which is fantastic because it provides shelter, but also the rotting wood attracts the insects, which lay, you know, it's got grubs in it. Um, and another garden which has got a nice wildlife pond with a shallow beach at one end of it so the hedgehogs can get a drink. Um, obviously, the, the ornamental ponds are a nightmare because the hedgehogs fall in and drown. And then the next garden down there, they're like me, and they've got brambles. Um, and you know, this isn't this is more by um, in ineptitude rather than design. But you know, just chunks of my garden which are fairly wild. Um, and brambles are great because they're an amazing place to build a nest under. But again, provide food for a whole bunch of other things. And the garden further down there is the one where the female hedgehog that you know, because the females have a much smaller home range. They tend to hang around there. So actually, as a male hedgehog, for example, you're looking for uh, food, uh, water, shelter, and a potential mate. Um, and whilst obviously the female hedgehogs must have some inclination to need to breed, they tend to spend much more effort just going, for goodness sake, let me eat and have a drink first. Um, <laughs> if you've ever seen courting hedgehogs, there's a real sense the I female have. hedgehog just going, oh, f -f 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 -f. and I'm sure she's saying something there. Anyway, so so the, the, the fragmentation, the Prevention of the hedgehogs moving into these different habitats is a problem. And we know from uh, a modeling exercise that Tom Morehouse did um, that in a good, uh, the best urban suburban habitat, hedgehogs need a minimum starting population, about 32 hedgehogs, but they need to have 90 hectares. That's the bare minimum, nearly a square kilometer. And then if you start to look at your, and I, I advise people to do this all the time, is just look at Google Maps and, and take it up a little bit and look down where you are and look at the connectivity, look at the obstacles, look at the places which mean that, do you really have that sort of space? Behind me is Florence Park, a great park. The entire Florence Park estate where I live, built in the 1930s, is about 26 hectares. Um, just over that way, about 50 meters that way, there's a canalized brook, which is a, a pitfall trap and nothing will get out. Well, no hedgehog will get out of it. I've rescued four in the last 20 years. Over there's the Ifley Road, which is a busy road. Over there's the Cowley Road, which is a busy road. And over there is, between Towns Road, less busy, but still, this area, which feels like a really big area, is only 26 hectares. And so we need three of these areas connected together to create a viable population size for hedgehogs. And that's when you begin to go, okay, this is what we need. And that's why we started the Hedgehog Street campaign. So you need to talk to your neighbors and talk about making the holes, the, the 13 centimeter square holes, or just digging something underneath or creating the corridors. And this is the way to begin to overcome these things. And then obviously you do all of the other things on the Hedgehog Street website um, uh, in terms of, of, of planting wild yeah, pollinator, uh, encouraging plants and, and making sure your pond's okay and making sure the hazards are removed. But the first and most important thing is making sure the hedgehog can actually get into your garden. Yeah. Which is, which is so simple, isn't it? I mean, just, you know, and, and actually brick walls, because I live in Victorian Terrace um, and we do have um, old coal roots at the back. Um, but just for good measure, I, uh, I've knocked holes in the walls. Um, so how do you do it? How do you do it? It took ages. And I'm, you know, I'm 41 years old and my knees are not what they used to be. And so it took it took several attempts because my knees just could not handle it. Um so I got a um, oh, a hammer and a chisel, I think it's called. And these are Victorian walls, so they they are you know they're quite soft. And I and I just I just chiselled away at the at the pointing, and I and then I was able to knock a whole brick out. And so I've got um, yeah, two bricks. Two bricks is, is about is about fifteen centimeters. And and then I put the and then the, the the brilliant thing is is that then I've got a little night camera and I put the night camera in front of the hole and within two days the hedgehogs were using it. And 
And we've got we've got the coal routes at the, at the back of the gardens, but one garden was cut off, and that one garden is a shortcut to the park. So actually, since I've put that final hole in, um, the, the, there has been an increase in hedgehogs in my garden, which is great because they they've got this. They don't have because previously, so I, I'm quite similar to you. I've, we've got this Victorian terrace, um, then that backs onto a new housing estate, which is sort of very small gardens, lots of plastic grass, and then and then the park beyond, and where I've put hedgehog boxes in the park um and so before they'd have to sort of come around from the park and then they all the way around the road into the alley and then up the coal scuttle to get my garden up coal scuttle coals coal coal roots to get into the garden and now they've got the shortcut and it's great one of the things i really want to do that i mean i started nearly four years ago now i started a petition with change.org because actually i've made the holes and it's really really hard work i borrowed a a um a core drill bit thing 127 millimeter core drill bit thing i am i am my wife buys power tools and does stuff i'm terrified of power tools and there i was with this thing with the diamond tip spinny thing um making a hole through again victorian holes in uh walls in um north oxford and uh, luckily i had a, a friend of mine who's a builder and i got him to come along because i was just terrified one the wall would fall on top of me two the machine would explode three i'd take a leg <laughs> off or something like that and so i got him to come along and, and guide me on this um but it took an hour to get through a you know, double skin uh, uh, wall with this mm. thing, and it was. But yeah, oh, see, it, mine, are, mine are only single skin. I mean, they're tiny, tiny. But it's old it's walls. really hard. Anyway, so so isn't it better if you don't have to do it? And and I know a lot of fence manufacturers are now started to produce the gravel boards uh, with actually holes. You can buy a hedgehog friendly gravel board, which is if you're replacing a fence panel, you can put that in, and that's great. Um, you can cut a hole with a jigsaw, sort of a small sort uh, into the wooden bit, and put brick step ladder uh, steps up to it because the hedgehogs will do that. They'll find their way around um but so what i ended up doing though is with change.org when they they got in touch with me and said would you like to do something to help return hedgehogs to their former glory they said i was going oh i've waited 30 years for this opportunity um i said okay fine so i said the simple thing what you need to do they said you need to find a question or an ask what's your ask and i said it's great and so we ended up having this conversation back and forth and it was ended up you know this all new housing developments to come with the Hedgehog Highways built in place. It's like this size of an ask. It's so small. And um, I was almost embarrassed to ask for something so small, but they pointed out that every time I do an update, um, change.org slash save our hedgehogs, uh, just in case you need it. Um, I, get, well, I get the emails. Oh, you did? Well, you cha- got one this oh, yeah. morning. Got one this morning. So, yeah, it'll be hopefully not in your junk box. And um, so the... Uh, so I, yeah, Every time you do an update, it goes out to everybody who's 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 signed up to it. And when when it got to hundred thousand signatures, I was like thinking, I've never had such an audience in my life. This is amazing. Then I got to half a million signatures, and I had a meeting with the then housing minister, um, and uh, th- and met up with the boss of one of the biggest housing developers in the country. It's like, oh wait a minute, we've had you know, Bobis Homes um, have got in touch with us and said we're going to do it anyway, and they then bought out Linden Homes, who've become the Vistry Group, and. They have it as standard policy where they can. They put them in without us shouting at them and without the government forcing them to. Uh, Taylor Wimpy have now done it as well. And I'm finding that local authorities, planning departments are beginning to say it may be only guidance, but it's a stipulation now. If you want this, you have to do it. And, And on the top of this... I have a Facebook group um, because it, the, the petition got to over a million and, and actually it's it's impossible to communicate with people. But there's a Hedgehog Highways Facebook group, um, which is very moderate at just 20,000 people now. Um, thank goodness to my lovely moderators. And um, and we get people on there saying, well, what do we do about this? And there's a guy in Suffolk and you know, he had hedgehogs in his garden and he's really worried that this would cut off, fragment the landscape. And so I just said, look, the, the first thing is just talk to them. Just go into the showrooms and find out the name of the person. So he did, and he wrote to all three of them. And the first one got back in touch, and it was a small family company. And and they went, seems reasonable. Yeah, of course. Second one he went to was Linden Homes, and they'd just been bought out by Bovis. And um, there was a little bit of a to and a fro between myself and them. And, and, and they said, no, but it's part of what we're going to do anyway. And then the last wrote back to him and said, ha, you've got to be kidding. We've already bought the fencing. Don't be ridiculous. And so he got back in touch with me. We corresponded he and i said look polite persistence that's all you need go for it just write again write again and we yeah and in the end saying look there's at that stage i know three quarters of a million people or nearly a million people signing a petition about this come on potential customers and in the end said okay yeah we'll do it and so it's it's 
I do the shouty shouty from the petition bit, but actually it's people on the ground noticing developments taking place who are managing to get this thing enacted. And I, I love that so much. The fact that you've got people like Jonathan who are just going, okay, I'm going to do this. And that's the thing, isn't it, about, about gardens is that, you know, gardens can be incredible refuges for hedgehogs. We just need them to get in and out. Those that's the, that's the first step. Just make sure they get in and out. Um, Natural food, native plants. Yeah, I mean, I'm asked always, 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 because people want to do more. So you've made the hedgehog hole. That's great. Hedgehogs come into the garden, but we must feed the hedgehog. Well, okay. There are some very divergent points of view about this sort of thing. And I'm, and with the least controversial thing to say is basically, if your garden is wildlife friendly, you don't mm. need to put out any extra food. Although. My garden is wildlife friendly, obviously, but I'm surrounded by plastic grass. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so, so actually supplementary feeding can be important if you are in an ecological desert. I think if you're in a very urban area, as I am, um, I'm sort of two streets from the high streets, I've got this population of hedgehogs, which I'm so proud of. I don't know if it's a viable population. I don't know if there's 32 hedgehogs. Um, I do know there's a lot of plastic grass. I do know that I've got long grass i've got all the native plants i've got caterpillars everywhere i've i've got you know i i've got log piles i've got i've got a compost heap which is just it's where everybody lives apart from me it's like i've got my shed and my wall and there's a gap in between the shed and the wall which is just one long compost heap and there's a hedgehog hole at the bottom which they've made and that's where they live no one else can get in the cats can't get in the foxes can't get in i can't get in and i never touch it it's where they live so i've got all these amazing habitats but i still worry and also just you know now that our springs are getting drier i do you know i leave water out for them every night but the, we, i didn't have a single april shower and when I just feel like when when hedgehogs come out of hibernation, um, if the soil is really dry and cracked as it was here in the southeast in 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 spring, then then yeah, I, I do I do worry that my one wildlife garden isn't enough, so I do feed them and I do leave them water. Okay, so I I agree with you entirely, and the water is something which. Um... I've always known that you've always got a dish of a shallow dish of water out in the garden uh, on mm. the ground anyway. Um, but then last year I got sent, somebody sent me a video and it wasn't a trail camera video because they tend to only be sort of 15 seconds or so. This was some CCTV footage. Oh, amazing. Showed a hedgehog trundling along towards a dish of water and it was drinking nonstop for over two minutes. Yeah, they do. And it's but just it's, like, it... oh my goodness. Because you see in the short <laughs> clip on the trail camera, you go, oh, they have a quick drink and move on. No, no, no. Yeah. This is that length of time. So that absolutely drove home how important it was. Mm. I think the, um, um, I suppose my, my concern is a lot of people put food out because it attracts the hedgehogs to a place where they can see them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but what it does mean is you get a lot of hedgehogs coming close together when they're normally, they practice mutual avoidance. Mm. And that if you, you know, if you do are lucky, if you are lucky enough to have lots of hedgehogs come into your garden, maybe have two or three different feeding stations around the place. Make sure they're covered up so other animals aren't coming in. There are all sorts of designs for feeding stations online. Um, but also it's just that question of remembering that you know, if you're doing it for yourself, then you need to make sure that the hedgehogs are benefiting too. Um, yeah. I mean, actually, the, the selfless thing to do is to put lots of little feeding stations around you know, the edges of your garden where you don't see them, and the mm. hedgehogs will come in and eat that food, but you don't, you know, you don't get to... And obviously, the, you know, we began by talking about what got me into hedgehogs, and it's actually that, <laughs> the, the connection you get. So I really see the value of that, but just to recognize that, but also mm. to recognize that we are massively altering our ecosystem by putting yeah. out all of this food. Um, and there was some work done in Brighton, uh, looking at fox, people feeding foxes. Yes. And it was, it, I can't remember whether it was like 10 or 20 times the population of foxes could be maintained just by the food people were putting out just mm. for foxes. And um, people feed badgers as well, don't they? Yeah. Yes. And you see, it was, I, th I think I saw something on Twitter yesterday and there's like 20 badgers in a garden. Um, and it's lovely to have this proximity to wildlife, but it, you know, these, these are very artificial situations to put in place. But just remember, hedgehogs um, are carnivorous, they need meaty food, um, and uh, I, the debates are endless as to about what it should be. And what I would basically say is, if people have got that hair trigger finger thing ready with the outrage gun, you know the outrage gun, the one which starts screaming at you immediately, you say something, 
um, um, come to the Hedgehog Highways uh, Facebook group and ask questions. Don't worry, because we've got moderators and people who scream and shout at you get thrown out. Um, <laughs> because actually people need to find out answers. So now I feed them branded uh, 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 kitten biscuit, which is very expensive. Um, but they seem to like that. So. Spoilt hedgehogs. You just they spoil those hedgehogs. Spoiled. That's really. They only get one dish a night, though. They get one dish, and that's between about six or seven. So I think that I think they're okay. And then I do also see them eat uh, things from the grass. They do caterpillars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caterpillars completely, all the caterpillars and things out there. So they they have a very natural diet that's topped up with kitten biscuits. So I think I, I think that's okay. And they're right at the end of the garden, so I don't see them. Oh, but you have a trail they're, camera. But I have a trail camera, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Last night I put the trail camera in the feeding station, which is um, which is great. <laughs> so, so okay. Anyway, next time I'm down in Brighton, um, um, and if I bring a bottle of cold wine, is that all right? We would just oh, sit yeah, in the garden and watch hedgehogs. hedgehogs. Uh, just be yeah. like, I've because I I've lived in this estate in um, East Oxford for nearly twenty five years now, and I used to see hedgehogs. Every summer, I see hedgehogs in the garden, and I, I, you know, I'm doing this from my shed at the bottom of the garden. I come down the garden every night to check the shed's locked. I make, I'd come, I've, I come down with a torch, not because I'm worried about um, you know, the path, but it's just because I'm looking around to see if there's any hedgehogs. I haven't seen a hedgehog in my garden now, probably for nine years. Um, and I said we've got a park behind me. All of the fence, so the, the the railings with the park behind for the entire estate wide enough to let hedgehogs through so it's entirely porous the entire estate is porous um and the, the estate is full of hippies and artists well it used to be until the house prices went up uh, so that the fences are all falling down you know there's a lot of connectivity and um yet it that's not the issue i mean the issue is that our we have an island which is too small i mean there are sightings of hedgehogs a friend of mine had uh, a family of hedgehogs in her front garden about three years ago. Um, and it was fantastic, really fantastic. Uh, so they, they're getting it. It's not an entirely isolated island, but it's still, you know, we are fragmented by, you know, canalized ditch by busy roads. And and so I speak to people like you and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm full of, of admiration for the work you do, but mainly it's tinged with jealousy. I know. It just makes me realise how lucky I am. It really does. I mean, I did actually move here for hedgehogs. Um, <laughs> I no, I was living in Central Hove and there weren't any hedgehogs, so I moved out to Port Slade. Um, and because I knew there were hedgehogs here, because I'm part of the local hedgehog group and I knew they'd been sighted in the park. So I was like, right, I can work with this. This so is I gonna be a, to... a prime location search term, hasn't it? It's gotta be on there now. It has, has to be. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, Come yeah. here for the hedgehogs. Yeah. Um and yeah, it started with a few. Um, and I do I think I have about six or seven. And um, I'm just so lucky. And the, the lovely thing is, Hugh, they come out at about half past eight in the evening. At this time of year, they come out before it gets dark and you just see them. We're just watching telly and you just see them sloping around. <laughs> and it's lovely. Um, and yeah, I put my child cameras out and, and I've just got this morning routine every morning. No matter what I've got to do with my day, I get up, I make a cup of tea and I watch hedgehog videos in bed. And it's just... It's just a lovely way to live. That's absolutely brilliant. I think it really you you should set this up and start marketing it as a sort of a, <laughs> yeah one of those sort of mindful mornings is is going to be just hedgehog videos. Uh, I mean, next step is having Wi-Fi connected up to your you know TV in your bedroom and just lie back and have it all just sort of spooling through. Oh, you have. It's just this 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 is the perfect life. Yes, yes. it's it's quite nice. It's quite cup nice of tea and hedgehogs. Cup of tea and hedgehog videos. It's the best. It's the best. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>